I'm Toby Haydoke, yes, I'm the real Haydoke, and the real Toby Haydoke, even if he's not going to stand up, will probably be talking about it in this podcast. Yes, this one's a bit of a cheat. I like to say, oh, I've trawled the world and tried to do all sorts of detective work to get some people who've never spoken about Doctor Who before and I've left no stone unturned and for this one I just phoned a mate. All right, okay. So um, I'm in a lovely uh, uh, house eating uh, chocolate eclair and unlike many of my interviews, I've actually had the pleasure of working with this gentleman many times. I'm not sure he's ever spoken publicly about his role in Doctor Who, and you may well know him, but not know that he's been in Doctor Who. So I'm going to ask him who he is and why the hell I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Hello, Tom. I'm Bob Mills, um, comedian and other things. Uh, apparently, I'm a, a comedian, uh, host and writer. That's what it says on Wikipedia. But you're talking to me because I was... Uh, in Snake Dance, which is better known uh, amongst Doctor Who fans as the the first acting jobs of Jonathan Morris and Martin Clunes, I was the Imperial Federator's bodyguard. You were well. Yeah, you were two parts as well, weren't you? Didn't you? You had chameleon-like versatility. I was no. What, what it was is I was the there was me and another fella, and we were the Imperial Federators. But the Imperial Federator was, was a lovely woman. You you know who she Colette O'Neill. Colette O'Neill. Yes. She was the Imperial Federator. And she had to, so she had bodyguards, and it was me and another fella. But at some point, the director must have thought, she's quite important, there's only these two blokes. You know, maybe there should be more. And they they got around that superbly by, in some scenes, we wore helmets. So it looked like she had a much bigger coterie of bodyguards than she actually did. In fact, it was just two of us, but sometimes we wore helmets. And so how would you have got um, a part like that? Because, uh, you know, I obviously know you as a, a, a very busy and respected comic, and you've, uh, as you say, Wikipedia says, host, pundit, all that sort of thing. So how did you start life as a, essentially a, a walk-on? Work? Right, I was, I was not in the entertainment business at all. I was nothing to do with uh, anything. But I met somebody who did extra work. And they said, I said, what is it? And they explained to me what it is. Uh, and I went along to East London. There used to be a company called in East London called Studio Artist Management (SAM). They're in Markhouse Road, and it was it was like any sort of casual labour. You went, you had a photo took, and you filled in a form. And if there were, uh, and they had works for specific types. There was there was amazing. The the extra world is a fantastic world. Uh, the 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 most sought after people are people who've got their own police uniforms because <laughs> they're worth a fortune, you know, because they, they can always be... Because if you look at any police drama, behind Lewis and Morse, there are 20 police uniformed police officers. So if you can present yourself with authentic police uniform, you know, you save money on wardrobe and you, you're there. So you get that job. So there were people who specialised in that. I didn't specialise in anything, but I was quite young and quite good-looking good looking and well-built, and I was all right. So I th- I'd done a couple of bits. I did a thing called Fall of Eagles, oh, yeah. which was a programme about the last cavalry charge of the First World War. 
Uh, and it was when Polish troops, might, was it the first, might have been the second, I don't know, but Polish troops, uh, cavalry charged German tanks. Quite a famous incident in military history and they made a film of it. And we had to go to a field in Suffolk and we were told these are the great days before health and safety. We all had to walk along with, with pretend guns and a, a, a pl platoon from the Household Cavalry in uniform charged us. And we were told to wait until, <laughs> wait until the horses reached that coppice, which was about 50 yards away. And then, without panicking the horses, just move aside to the right and left for the shot. And basically, we just turned tail and ran out <laughs> for leather as soon as they appeared over the brow hill, because it was terrifying. It was about 40 horses. But anyway, I digress. Uh, and about the third... Third or fourth job I got was the, the Doctor Who. They said, do you want to do Doctor Who? Well, they didn't. I'm sorry. I'm building this up like they made you an offer. Are you interested in doing <laughs> a small... No, they just said, uh, 10 o'clock Saturday morning, you've got to go to... I remember this. I remember it specifically because it was the only one where you got a rehearsal day. It was the first one I'd ever had a rehearsal day. So you went over to White City and you had a rehearsal day. And... I think you knew what it was, but only when you got the paperwork, it just said doctor or it didn't say anything. And you turned up there and they were rehearsing, but they gave you a rehearsal day because they did, Doctor Who was one of the ones they did properly and there were quite a few kind of action sequences. Because I remember I would have got better money. I got what they call dirty, wet money. There was dirty money and wet money in the in the uh, walk-on business. Wet money was, was, no, dirty money was if, specifically if you got dirty, you know. <laughs> but wet money wasn't just for getting wet. Wet money was for doing any kind of action. And in this, I had to physically restrain uh, Martin Clunes. I would have got an extra £27, I think, or something from that, and a rehearsal day, because you had to, you know, you couldn't just do that on the day. You had to rehearse the physical restraining thing. As... as sort of supporting artist parts go, it's not bad. You're there, you're, you're in the thick of it for pretty much the whole whole story. Well, all the way through, it was it was a fascinating thing because I'd watched Doctor Who, obviously I'd watched Doctor Who. I'm of an age, you can't not, it's like saying I've eaten white bread, you can't not have watched Doctor Who at my age. But I'd never, you know, I'd, but I had no idea how it was made, so the rehearsal was good, Uh and Clunes, I remember Clunes being a remarkably nice lad. And Jonathan Morris, I don't think it was Jonathan's first job. I think Jonathan might have, he hadn't done bread yet, but he might have done something. And they were really nice kids, I remember. Uh, and Peter Davison was very nice at the rehearsal. And then on the day, of course, when you turn up, we, we look back, you see, on Doctor Who, not as minutely as you do, but most people look back at Doctor Who, and it's... Um, but people are going about the sets. Oh, the sets was all cardboard. In fact, it was very high-tech. It was very sophisticated. It was a massive studio. And I remember there was a big market scene and there was a cave and there was corridors. It was, it was very high-spec for its time. Do you know what I mean? And so, um, so we turned up on the day. And, yeah, we were in a lot of scenes. I was in an awful lot. Because whenever the Imperial Federator was, or her son, who was... Cloonsy, uh, I would have to be one of you know they would have to they couldn't just walk around because they were too important so someone that would always have to be me uh, would walk along them and it would be me in a cheesecloth smock 
with thonged sandals and a headband and or a helmet, depending on which scene it was. <laughs> and then, and uh, I've told you the story of the sword, haven't I, to Peter Davidson. See, this is the great thing. I've met Peter Davidson since. Uh, I think he was, I used to uh, do Windows or Doors, which a game show, and I think he was on that. But I've never spoken to him about that. You wouldn't. But there was, there was a strange bit in it where you ha- I had to get I had to hold a sword to his sword. It was a wooden sword. He was never in any physical danger. It was painted metal, but it was it was wood. But I had to hold it to his throat. I had the I had the mask on, full helmet on. I had to hold it to his throat. And the instruction that I was given was I was to hold it to his throat, and then I was to hold that pose for ten seconds or something. And then there would be another cue, and Peter would push the sword away and, and you know break away from me. And I think, in my head, I decided that that was the point that they would end the episode and then they would start again the following episode with the action. This was what was in my head. And also I was enveloped in a helmet. And so there was a terrible moment where I held the sword up to his thing uh, and then they had to cut and someone shouted and told whoever it was doing it to stop it because they were wasting time and then we had to do it again. And I think he knew that without realising, I was I was doing the doc, Doctor Who theme in my head in, in, <laughs> in the helmet. So I'd put the sword up to him and go, dong da dong dong da dong dong da dong dong, and they obviously they heard it and, and had to do it again. <laughs> it's like you and McGregor when he was doing Star Wars. Apparently, when he was doing the sword fights, he kept going. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you would do, wouldn't you? Of course, you would. <clears throat> now, so how did you get from there, be it doing the walk-on stuff, to to? Um, I mean, you had you've done a lot of very high-profile on your own telly. I've done my own telly. You, do you know what? This is the thing. There's no connection. There is no connection. There is there is a thing in the walk-on. The walk-on world is is a strange world. I know Gervais did it with extras, but it's no one's ever really captured the strangeness of it because it's it's full of very different types of people. It's full of people who think I know what this job is. It's just sexual. I've just got to sit around and they take a book. And they're quite happy and they pick up their money and they have no ambition at all to anything. But it's also a lot of very people who want to make it and they think, I'll just be here and maybe the director will notice me. And the director will be sitting filming Brad Pitt and think, well, this is a good shot, but wow, who's that guy sitting over there <laughs> chewing? I like, you know, and, and there'll be notice. That, I don't believe that ever happens. It certainly didn't happen to me. I did it and then, because I needed the money, it was a nice part-time job. And then... I left, I stopped doing it because I got another job, a proper job, and I did a proper job a long time after that. And then, some years later, I became, I started doing stand-up, and that's then when everything started, and, you know, I started doing stand-up, and then I got my own telly and writing and all that stuff. So there's no connection. I'd love there to be a straight line between snake dance and, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, some big TV show, but there, there really isn't. I'm going to ask you a long question now because you've been answering my questions brilliantly but also looking at an eclair that you've hardly had a chance to touch. So if I, if I ask a long question, you can have, an, you can have a mouthful. Um, and it is because although um, you have, you, as, a, as a stand-up, uh, and I think if, I don't know, if people haven't seen you live, you, you're sort of bulletproof to me because you, you make it look easy, which I know that for a fact that it isn't, and you also look like you don't care. And that's... And as a lot of comedians wear a sort of vulnerability on their sleeve, but you you seem to give the impression 
uh, which to me makes you bulletproof in front of a crowd that actually you don't mind if they don't think you're funny or not. So, of course, they find you very, very funny indeed, and I've never seen you struggle at a gig. So is that something you learnt to do, or have you always had that about you? No, that's, that, that's, thank you very much for saying that. It is something I very much have learnt to do. And it, it comes from... It wasn't always like that. It was... It was when I first, oh, I'll tell you what it is, when I first started out, I didn't know what it was stand-up. I sort of did it, I'd seen it being done, and I did it, and I, there's, there's a few weeks in the life of a stand-up which are beautiful weeks, because they don't know it's hard work, and they don't know that it can go really badly. So they're just keen, and they, and they go and they do it, and it goes well. And then they start thinking about it, and then it starts going badly. They start, you know, it, it reverts to what it should be, which is really, really hard work. And I reached a point after about a year where I thought, I, I, I actually thought about it probably for the first time and thought, this is going okay, but some nights aren't as good as others. And the best nights I can remember are the first nights, the early days. And I tried to analyse where that was, and it was, I, I, was, I realised it was because I had no fear. And the thing that you had to do was was teach yourself to not have the fear. And the way to do that was to pretend to yourself and therefore to the audience that it didn't matter. And once you once and, and that then becomes your style. And some people's style in, in those days was to be very nervy and frightened, and they did well. But that was because they developed that style and they were pretending to be nervy. Whatever it is, people. People will say all comedy is truth. In fact, it's the exact opposite. All comedy really is is seeing truth, but then disguising it to to suit yourself. And so over the years, uh, it is kind of bulletproof because there is absolutely nothing of me in 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 the stand up. It's which sounds really strange because it seems that it's all me and it's all open. It's just me talking. But that's because it's all this kind of rather big, loud, mouthy character that, that's, that's developed. But it's not actually me, so it doesn't. So there's no harm can come. Basically, it's camouflage. That's interesting because I would always say the best piece of advice I was ever given was by a mate of mine who said you're much funnier when you're just yourself. And mm. I, 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 you know, I used to drop my accent slightly at gigs. And if I was doing the Frog and Bucket in Manchester, I'd sort of go hello so that people didn't think I was posh, even though I'm not, but I give that impression. Yeah. Um, but actually, when I turned around about a year later and, and instead of going, oh, hello, I went, oh, hello, and actually upped it. Yeah. That sort of disarmed any... any but that's, so, so what you've done, it, it, that's exactly my point. What you do is you learn to pretend to be a funny version of yourself. Yeah, yeah. That's what it is. And people say, oh, there used to be a great line, Paul Martin used to do a great line, where he used to say, some people say comedians, sometimes they say, you know what, he's just as funny off stage as he is on. And I think, well, that was a waste of a tenner then, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and so what, well, what had made you try stand-up then? Oh, again, I, I wish there was a... Oh, I came in early, I came in during alternative comedy, this, and I wish, I wish it, I could. there was a glamorous reason, but I'll tell you the reason. We just got married, and we had, <coughs> our daughter was about two years old, and we didn't get many nights out, we didn't have much money, and we had one night, we had a night out, we had a babysitter, and we went to see a film at the Screen on the Green in Islington. 
can't remember what it was, but I do remember we got there late and it had started. And in them days, films were only on once a night and it started and if you missed the te- first ten minutes, you missed it. And I thought, I'm not spending what little money I have to see a film where I've missed the first ten minutes. So we didn't go to pictures. We went across the road to the, the Market Tavern, Camden Passage in, in uh, Islington. And we went in there and we bought a drink each, me and Jan, and they were taking money on the door to go downstairs to see to see something. There was obviously something going on. And it was a pound or 50 pence if you were unwaged. <laughs> that was an actual word back then. It was when it wasn't felt... It was felt demeaning to call people unemployed. So they were, for a, for a small time back then, they were known as the unwaged, which was a lovely phrase. And we was unwaged. So we paid 50 pence each and we went downstairs and it was a comedy night. Now, you have to, you have to realise something now. I grew up and all I knew about comedy, I thought, what comedy? I'd never seen live comedy. I saw it on the telly. So to me, comedy was... Oh, this Irish fella goes into... Oh, my mother-in-law, she's so fat. That's what I thought comedy was. I didn't know there was an... But I went and sat down there, and I remember the bill, like it was yesterday. It was very young Mark Thomas, very young Kevin Day, uh, Pat Condell, who's never been very young, and (laughs) uh, a double act called Nickelodeon, who used to... I can't remember what they did, but they used to finish their act by saying... and. And then we're going to do the song, and the song's going to sort of fade. In our head, the act is very cinematic, and it sort of fades. Uh, we haven't got any lighting, but could you all do us a favour, ladies and gentlemen? When I put my hand up, could you all very slowly close your eyes? <laughs> <laughs> it's just a beautiful way to finish that. But I sat there, and I watched Mark, and I watched Kevin... Before, before both of them became the political warriors that they later became, and they were doing, and they were doing material. I mean, I'm, you know, Mark, Kevin Day used to have, I'll tell you, two of Kevin Day's gags in those days, uh, the early 80s. One of them was, um, I remember the first time I ever had sex. I, I remember thinking, I can't wait to get to school on Monday so I can stop lying and start exaggerating. <laughs> and the other one was... It's obviously we work at the weekend. I try and work most weekends. Obviously, one weekend in four, I go down to Greenham Common for the peace camp. And there'd be a round of applause. And they say, no, don't. It's, when you're in the TA, you've got to go where they send you. <laughs> and I remember thinking, this is incredible. I didn't know this existed, this art form. This is fantastic. And I came away uh, thinking... Um, I don't know, there's something weird. There's a weird thing that I've seen that I didn't know existed. And thinking, I love music, I love bands, but I can't play an instrument, so there's nothing really I can do about that. And I like acting and that, but I can't act. But I think I could probably do that. I think I could probably stand and, and talk and, and learn some jokes. So I did, and that's it, really. That's, uh, that's why I started. For money, because I thought... I was at the bar at the end of the night and I saw Kevin getting paid and I heard the woman say, it's 30 quid tonight, Kev, because it was a door split. And I remember thinking, 30 quid? Wow. Wow. And that's, uh, that's it, really. And that's uh, <clears throat> still what you get paid that's for gigs in Central London. <laughs> I'm lucky if I put 30 quid in. <laughs> <laughs> so, <clears throat> so you were there at the, as you say, the sort of start, really, the burgeoning yeah, the, of the, sta- the alternative. The, the kind of second wave, really. It was sort of the second wave. Uh, there, there, was a, there was a circuit there. There was a Lexi sale. 
uh, and there'd been um, French and Saunders and, and Rickonade and uh, people like Andy Delator and Jim Barkley and Seething Wells and, and the, you know, Attila the Stockbroker. And there was that sort of circuit. But I was in the wave that came and made it, I have to say, slicker. You know what I mean? It had more people suddenly... Because then people... Because it had all been a bit free and easy before. But now clubs were springing up and people were being charged a fiver to get in. And suddenly they were thinking, well, I paid five pounds. I don't want to see four performance poets. And it's not enough for people just to come on and go, Fetcher, yeah, yeah, what a bitch. And it wasn't enough anymore, you know. You had to have slightly more. And so we started kind of coming up with actual jokes rather than just, you know, comedic situations. My first ever joke that I did on stage um, was, was political. My first ever joke was... Um, Here's an amazing thing, ladies and gentlemen, because that was my voice back then. Here's an amazing thing. What about this, ladies and gentlemen? Wouldn't you think that because of the way Thatcher's uh, running this country into the ground, which I never believed, and we've always been a huge fan of Margaret Thatcher, who's running this country into the ground, uh, that would make people, that would turn people against Reaganomics and the policies of uh, the American president. But apparently it's the exact opposite. And I'd take out a piece of paper, the newspaper, so I've just read this. As a direct result of Mrs. Thatcher's policies, 98% of people in this country are for Reagan. I mean, that don't make... Oh, sorry, 98% of people in this country are foraging. Right, that, <laughs> that's all right, isn't it? That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> and that was... That kept me going for about a year, that joke. <laughs> Didn't need much after that. <laughs> By the time they'd finished applauding that, your 20 minutes was up. But it's very interesting what you say about that, because what's going to be a follow-up, and this is going to be a long question as well, so you can eat some more of your cake, um, is that having worked with you, and I remember recently you said you'd just done the news quiz and that you felt that they'd put you on to add a bit of sort mm. of writer-wing pragmatism to, to the sort of very Radio 4-esque line-ups. Um, and it's always struck me that you've never, when I've worked with you, sort of any... any Anything vaguely political that you've done has always been very pragmatic. Were you pretending to be left-wing back in the day or have your politics changed? No, or? no, I was... You, you had to be. You had... You couldn't... You couldn't get away with, with anything. I mean, now, it's kind of gone the other way. You could, you could be very right-wing now. But, in, you know, you have to realise that it was a protest movement then. First and foremost, it was a protest movement, and the enemy were seen as the comics, the mainstream comics, who were all terribly right-wing and terribly racist and sexist and treated women just as objects, you know. And so there was no grey area. You were, either, you were either with us or you were against us. That was, that was the attitude. So if you wanted to work on the circuit, if you wanted to work at the Earth Exchange which is a beautiful little vegetarian restaurant on the Archway Road, uh, run by Friends of the Earth, where your pay was a fiver and a vegetarian meal. And you performed in front of the fireplace with people sitting at wooden tables eating lentils. You couldn't be playful. You, couldn't be, you wouldn't risk being ironic at all about anything because, they, because the people who were coming, the audience, they believe they held these beliefs very, very strongly. 
they believed that we were he- that the only way forward was for a socialist government to, to come in and, and take over. And they believed that all men were basically misogynist and, and you know, and you couldn't play with that sort of thing at all. So certainly for the first year or so, I, I didn't have any very strong political views, but I, but I knew there was something fundamentally wrong with this kind of unquestioning left-wing, you know, utopia that they thought we were heading for. And who <clears throat> who were the best comics that you that you worked with back in the day? Well, back in the day, it's funny, you know. There was some. Let me, let me tell you something about back in the day. We we I sit now and I'm quite an avuncular figure, and I sort of span these generations of comedy. Uh, and it's a bit like being an old footballer. Oh, we was Norman Hunter. Oh, Georgie Best. We was no. The situation with comedy is the same as football or athletics or boxing or anything. Any comic today who's got a decent 20 and is working in, in the sort of clubs, you know, the sort of middle-range club, would have been the biggest star in the country 25 years ago. Because the game has changed out of all recognition. The, there was so much dross. There was so much rubbish. Yes, there was there was Chris Lynham and Chris Lynham was amazing and Chris Lynham used to stick a banger up his bum and sing There's No Business, No Show Business. And yes, there was Jeremy Hardy and there was Paul Merton and they were doing thoughtful sort of political stuff. But they were oases in a desert of absolute cack. I mean, you, you went to... People now wouldn't understand. You went to a comedy club and if you were lucky, there might be one decent stand-up on it. And the rest would be performance poets and, and uh, agit-prop mental patients. <laughs> there was nutters there. There was a guy called Richard Reddled, whose act, as far as I can remember, used to be positing a question. He used to walk on stage and say, let me ask you this. If Chaifu put the tea in tea bags... Who put the CIA into official? <laughs> and then he'd stand there and wait for them to come up with an answer for this. Because <laughs> these are the questions we need to be asking. And it was Easy Mortgage, bless him, who used to dye his, paint his fingernails black. And my name is Easy Mortgage. There is a housing shortage. Just was all that. <laughs> there was so much nonsense out there. Real rubbish. Honestly, and the ones that stood there, and occasionally you'd get a spark. Arnold Brown, I remember the first time I saw Arnold. The first joke I ever saw Arnold done was the encyclopedia. You know Arnold's encyclopedia? Uh, yeah. And thinking, wow, I see what, yeah, I see what it is. I see what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be something clever and funny, not just clever. You see, the problem that we had was that. The 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 the, the, the the comic, the mainstream comics that we were supposed to be fighting against, although I've met most of them now, and they're all very nice people just trying to earn a living. But what what they sort of hated about them, you used to sit in the dressing room and slag them off about, was that, yeah, they're just funny. <laughs> That's all they are. They're just funny. And it's odd to think that there is a generation of, com- of comedians who saw this as a greatest sellout, <laughs> sheepening of their art. Yeah, they're just funny, that's all. They're not clever. 
And then, but unfortunately, you used to look at our lot and think, yeah, you're clever, but you're not funny. And so, uh, hopefully over the years, those two things have come together. Wow. Wow. And, <laughs> and of course, the, 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 uh, as you say, the cream uh, in such situations uh, rose to the top. Yeah. I won't keep you too much longer. As but... long as you like, mate, I've still got a Claire left. <laughs> but, um, so, in, I mean, In Bed With Medina... Uh, was was a great success for you, and as, and and is that something you look on fondly? Because certainly my generation, um, it was you know it was must see TV. I'll tell you what I'll tell you about in bed with my dinner. I'll tell you what it did. It was a lovely show. It was really cheap. We never made a penny out of it. Um, all the money I've ever made, the only decent money I've ever made in my career was was I did a, a game show. I did win or sort of did eight years of that, and that's great money. That's lovely. That you know that's why. I live in a nice house and I've got educated children. Medina never earned any, any money at all. But what it did do, for anyone who doesn't know it, it, it's a, it was a cult program. It was a cult late night show for the unemployed and the socially excluded. Um, Thanks, seeing as I've just said it. Yeah. <laughs> I watched it. Well, you know, it was angry loners. <laughs> students and angry loners. But it, did, it didn't make me any money at all. But what it did... And this is something that, that you might understand, but other people might. Is it, it scratched that itch forever? Because I'm now, I was a stand up comic before I did it, and I did loads of other stuff, and I'm now a stand up comic still. And the great thing is, I have no bitterness, I have no yearning. Because, you know, and when you get to my age, I'm late 50s, and there's a lot of comics of my age who think, yeah, but I should have done this, I could have done that. And they watch people and they think, yeah, they're doing that on telly, I could do that, I, I could do that. I think, you know what, if they gave me unlimited funds and unlimited studio time, I could never do anything again as funny as In Bed with Medina, which was just done cheap at the moment, and it was where I was at the time, and it just happened to work, and it was brilliant. And so I have no I have no yearning. I have no oh, I wish I could do this. Yeah. There's things I'd still like to do, but I'm not consumed like a lot of my generation of comics are with uh having a lack of achievement because I think when I die the it won't be it won't be a bigger I tell you what I'm, all I would hope is that I would be on the last word on Radio Four because I do stuff for Radio Four and they might just do oh, Bob Mills who's on the news quiz and uh, uh, but I think they will then come up this website now that when I was dead do you remember in bed oh, it was fantastic when oh, we used to do this so it will it, it will live on after me and that's all you can hope for. That something lives on after you, professionally. Well, I'll do your guardian a bit. <laughs> uh, and uh, what? What about uh, Bob Martin? Which, of course, was Bob you Martin and... was was fine. Bob Martin won't live on after me, unfortunately. It was a, it was a great idea. It was an idea that I'd come up with about uh, because I wanted to do it. I was going to play a game show host because I've been a, a game show host, and I, I know the, the game show host as a host. Uh, more show than the chat show host is, is a very fascinating character because if you've ever met a great game show host, and I was lucky enough, I met Monkhouse, I knew Monkhouse. 
if you meet a great game show host, Crowther as well, funnily enough, is a great game show host, there is an incredible ability, which I, I can't really get across on radio, but that you would be standing talking to them and you'd be saying, yeah, I don't know, I've done the gig in Sheffield, what do you think of the gig in Sheffield? And Monkhouse would say, oh, it's the pits, Bob. If you're going to do that... I'll tell you what you want to do. You want to get you want to get there early, and he'd be talking to you just like a normal person. And out the corner of his eye, this floor, the floor manager would count him in, and and without a beat, he would be able to say, "Because I'll tell you the thing about Casey Sheffield, Bob. Excuse me, just a second, ladies and gentlemen. I just want to say what a great." And he would, and they would just turn into this other person, a bigger person, a brighter person. And there were these naturally people, you know, people don't understand this. Sometimes people will say, how come he's always on telly? How come he's famous? What's that all about? But when you meet them, you think, because they were born to be, because there's something about them. And it's why I, I, I've done quite a lot of telly, but I've never really, and I've enjoyed a lot of it, but I've never felt any permanence about it. I never felt that I was going to be a TV star because I knew that I never looked like, a, when you meet these people, uh, this, when you meet, like Monkhouse, bless his heart, is no longer with us, and, and Crowther's no longer, but when you meet um, Vernon Kay, right, Whatever your thoughts about Vernon Kay as a performer. When you meet him, he looks like a star. He looks like a star. He walks like a star. Ant and Deck, although tiny diminutive, but you would never mistake them for technicians or, or shop assistants. Whereas I was, when I was on te television sets, I used to sort of sit at the side and wait until it was my turn but, you know, I never felt, I never had any aura about me. But these people have an aura. So Bob Martin, sorry, was, I was I'm going to, there's going to be a character and he's going to have this aura, but you're going to see what his actual life is like and how dark it is, but how he can then project this aura of thing. And, and Barrymore did it. And it was fine. <coughs> it was flawed. It was a flawed diamond. Uh, and then obviously Michael's life took over and became much more of a comedy drama itself, unfortunately. Mm. Your... Uh, Dad was the actor yeah, John John John, Mills. John Mills, yes, but a different John. Johnny, Johnny John, Mills, John Channel Mills, who I believe was the understudy for Leonard Rossiter when Leonard Rossiter died on stage. My old died man, died in his dressing room. JC, my father, John Channel Mills. He was my estranged father. I had the wonderful thing in my life. I was brought up by a lovely stepfather. Uh, and I, was, I was very, very close to like they do. But when I moved to London, when I came to London and started, I had the great pleasure of meeting my dad. Uh, and there was no great problem. I was 18, 19, I think, and I met him, and he was now married. He was on his fourth wife and was living his life. And there was never any kind of father-son regret thing. We just became friends. He was an old bloke that I got, got on with. And he was he was the old generation, I don't know if it still exists, of working uh, rep actors. He played golf and his perfect year was to get a panto until January, rest through February, March, and then pick up a, a rep that would take him right through the summer so he could go all over the country and play golf during the day and, and do a little do Night Must Fall 
you know, all the, that one about the Salem witch trials, he used to do that a lot. All, all these plays, you know the plays that yeah. used to go all around the country. And, um, and that's what he did. Uh, but occasionally he would come into the West End as an understudy. He understudied George Sewell on Billy Lyre for three years. And they used to go on, I think once a month, they would have an understudy matinee. Uh, and other than that, I don't think George Sewell was ever ill. So he, would, he literally sat in his dressing room, which he loved. He'd sit there, read a book, he'd do crosswords, and that was his job. It, was, it never bothered him at all. He, he didn't seem to have any great ego for it. But one of his later jobs, he was the understudy to um, Leonard Rossiter on Loot in the West End and he, he so I think he, what they do is you understudy the main part and then you play a little part he'll play like a little Bobby or something a little oh, copper oh, I, 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 that's what I did, oh, that, did I did that to Derek Griffiths <laughs> well, Derek go. Griffiths was Trascott and I was well there you go Constable Meadows well that's, that would be exactly that so you know how it works yeah. you, you, you're understudying this but Leonard was taken ill uh, collapsed in the interval, he was taken on the interval, and an ambulance was called. My dad went, I think, but dad found him in the dressing room. God, then it's collapsed, and an ambulance was called, and Leonard was, was rushed to hospital. But they had to see the second half of the play, so my dad, however they do it, someone else then becomes, I suppose, the ASM yeah. then becomes Constable Mellors, and my dad became Rostrofer and, and, and had the second half. And bless his heart, he went home on that night. He used to, he's, he's dead now, the old man, but he used to live in Gypsy Hill. And he got on the train, he went home, and he, he tells the story. He's, he's never, he didn't have a great ego, but he did think, he sat talking to his, his wife at the time, but she was his wife until he died, Maria. Uh, although he used to call her Ivy, because she was his fourth wife. And he thought that was funny, <laughs> Ivy. Ivy. <laughs> <laughs> but um, he said, he said, we sat at the kitchen table that night, and I said, you know what, there's only another three weeks to go in this run. <clears throat> and the word had come through that Leonard had passed away. He died, you know, it's terrible. But he was an actor, you know, it was a business thing. And he thought, there's only three weeks to go. I think, oh, we've been called in for 11 o'clock tomorrow. I think they might be, you know, three weeks, three, why not? Push me on. Three weeks, three weeks in the West End. Because there'll be publicity for the show because Leonard's passed away. So, you know, this could be, and he's, oh, it could be. And he said, and I walked up to Avenue the other day thinking, just brace yourself, I've got a little deal in my head. Yes, I'll quite happily accept that. And now maybe, is it worth, is it too much to get a publicist just to, for these street weeks? He said, but for the first time in my life, I'd allowed myself this dream. Uh, in the midst of the horror, obviously, of Leonard passing away, so, and I walked in the foyer and Dinsdale London standing there, and I thought, you <laughs> <laughs> They pulled Dinsdale off a tour for three weeks into the West End, so he never, he never, that second half... Was the only time. That was his, that was his one moment in the sun, bless him. And after that, it was a few more, you know, a few more years of touring, uh, a station master on the bill. Uh, and funny enough, one of his last ever jobs was the one that earned him decent money. He did an advert for something like Saga Insurance or something like that. And then he shuffled off, bless him. I saw him in And Then There Were None. Oh, yeah, Then There Were None, yeah. With, that, that, with James Warwick and Douglas Fielding. Yeah. Uh, they must have been great days. Yeah.
Imagine that when you could work as an actor. You didn't have to be famous. You see, but this is maybe I don't know. I didn't know him well enough or or, or, or for long enough to to have, to have got any wisdom. But maybe that's uh, it's something I feel now, especially with the younger comics who are coming in. I, I, I really worry about the the this desperation for fame because I think yes, it's good to be ambitious. You, you should be ambitious. It's wrong to to not be ambitious, but. If you're a comic, you don't have to be famous. It's a great thing to be a comic. You can earn a good living, especially in this day and age when there's you know, not a lot of job security anywhere. You know, you can earn a good living, and I guess that was his thing about acting. You don't have to be famous. You can be, you know... But the, one of the problems is the public perception. Certainly if you're a comic, people will say, if you, you know, what do you do? Um, I'm a comedian. Oh, you've been on Mock the Week. No, no, I haven't been on Mock the Week. Uh... And there, there you go. Oh, yeah, he ain't that good. Apparently, yeah, we met him. He said he was a comedian. He wasn't that good, though. He's never been on Mock the Week. So that's... Have you ever been on Mock the I've Week? I've never been on Mock the Week. <laughs> I've never been on any of them things. They were all after my time, really, all the big TV explosion. But then there wasn't... When we started, um, now, that was... There was no telly. Ben Elton, Ben was the first one to get on telly. And we thought, good luck to him, that's great. You know, there was no anger about it. But there was no telly. What you aimed for was to be working regularly at good clubs. And that was the height of your ambition. Whereas now, you know, be a millionaire now, can't you? They're out there earning millions, literally millions of pounds. And great. But that can only happen to a very, very small percentage. And the rest of them, I just hope that they don't get, you know... Bitter. Yeah, and don't, don't spend that 30 quid for a gig in central London too quickly. <laughs> uh, well, look, thanks, Bob. Um, I, I ask you to nominate a charity because this is uh, free and you've given your time for, merely for the, for the price of an eclair. I'll tell you, the, the only show, not the only show, but the one show I really, really like is, is the one, oh, I forget what it's called. You know the Dreams one for kids? Oh, yes. Make a Wish. The yeah, Make a Wish, Wish Foundation. Foundation. I like them. That's a good thing, and that's a good charity. That's a good we're charity. Not, we can't, we not, can't cure anything, but you know what? If there's one thing they want, let's do that for them because you know. There you go. That's a nice one, and it's Doctor Who's fiftieth anniversary. <clears throat> Lots of Doctor Who fans listening to this. So, what's your message to the Doctor Who fans out there? I'll tell you what. Uh, this is a terrible admission to make. I, I'm not a huge. I'm not a, what, what are they called what do you call yourselves well Doctor Who fans I think is, oh is come a, on you know who is there's Whovians Whovians yeah. I'm not I'm not a, a Who fanatic I'm hugely proud to be, to have been in it but also what a great story because it should have died it was dead really wasn't it mm. it was on the table and they were okay call it and they were walking away and they'd put the pads back into the defibrillator and now bang look at it it's huge. It's like Bond. Mm-hmm. It's not like because Bond was died dead on its feet, really. Do you know what I mean? It, they couldn't. Was it Dalton? I don't know if it's going to be Dalton or whether it's going to be Brother. It doesn't matter because it's died. And now, bang! And I think Doctor Who's done the same. Well done. That's my message. Well done for keeping the faith. Thanks, Bob. And thanks for your time. Cheers, mate. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate that. That was good. Some good stuff in there. Thank you. My thanks to Bob, um, what an easy uh, man he is to talk to and what good fun 
His charity is the Make a Wish Foundation, and their email is www.make-a-wish. So it's make a wish, but there is a dash between each of the words. So www.make-a-wish.org.uk, and you can make a donation there if you choose to. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, Doctor Who, Starlight Robbery. Sick of the same old slaughter appliances? In need of a killer new killing machine? Then look no further. Garandol Galactic for all your death-dealing needs. What race is it, this hawker of arms? You're Odellian, a breed of scavengers, mercenaries, bottom feeders... If you've got the credits, I've got the kill sticks. Cash buyers get preferential rates. Just name your method of destruction, and we'll have something that fits the bill. Or the kill! This individual is a particularly slippery specimen. You do not know me. Forgive me. You see so many faces in this line of work. Was it at a party? You do not know the destroyer of your world, the nemesis of Zabretnik, the Kraken Mother Banara! Ah. It appears to be a commercial. Death to the rooted scum! Glory to Santa! Well done, Mr. Arrowsmith. I... Ah. Bang, bang. You're dead. You're a monster, Carondel. Now she gets it. Santa! Santa! I die for Santa! Subscribers get more at bigfinish.com.